You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Three, two, one... But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR my icon man, Dale Earnhardt oh. Jr. Kirk Herbstreet oh. is on the phone. Hope everybody is doing well. Hope everybody had a great weekend. Hope everybody's getting ready for this Christmas holiday. Before we even get into the show, I should mention a few things. One, our merchandise is rocking and rolling. You Kentucky fans, Kentucky Revenge Tour tees are available. Aaron Torres online slash merchandise. You can check that out. Also, our Mike Effin Woodson tees are available, so check those out as well. You can always DM me for any questions. I also should mention today's this 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 uh, week I should say is probably going to be a little bit of a shorter window in the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. We'll do an episode today, probably do an episode Wednesday. Don't know that it makes a ton of sense to drop an episode on Friday, Christmas Eve. Many of you will be traveling. You'll be with family. There probably won't be much going on in the world of sports. So probably two episodes this week. And then, of course, next week, we got to start previewing the college football playoff, which is quickly coming up. With that said, today's show is loaded, jam-packed, a lot to get into. First of all, we have a quick update on what I talked about, what I ranted and raved about on Friday as the NFL has changed their COVID policy over the weekend. I think this is great. I think this is smart. I think this is a step in the right direction. Now we need college sports and we need the NBA and all other major pro sports to do the same. From there, we'll transition to some college football topics. A couple of you have asked me, do you think Urban Meyer? Now that he's out, we talked about it on last episode, do you think he'll ever coach in college again? Have some interesting thoughts on that. And some National Signing Day kind of stuff after. As AM, who already had the number one class coming out of Signing Day, has signed two more five stars since Signing Day. We'll talk about what that means. Is AM building a team that will one day compete at the top of college football? Closed the show with some college basketball. Thought it was a pretty light weekend in terms of storylines. The one big weekend, though. How about Kentucky's Vegas vacation? One big story of the weekend, I should say. How about Kentucky's Vegas vacation? 29-point win over North Carolina. Kentucky's back, baby. Kentucky's back at least for one day, but a major, major step in the right direction. 
With that said, though, let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day is going to be a quick, short follow-up to what we led Friday's show with. Friday, I did the 15-minute rant on why it is time to stop canceling sporting events because of COVID. And finally, we got some sanity over the weekend, but not before more insanity, as I yelled and screamed on on Friday's show, All day Friday, we're postponing NFL games. We now have two games on Monday, two games on Tuesday, which, by the way, is kind of awesome, even though it's kind of stupid that we're canceling and postponing games. And then I woke up on Saturday to see that Memphis and Tennessee had been postponed, and that was the one that really put me over the top because I know many of you are Tennessee fans. I know many of you were traveling to the game. I had friends that had literally parked and we're walking to the arena when the game was canceled. I go on social media. I do a rant. It got, I, I don't mean to brag, but it kind of went pretty viral. People are getting frustrated with these policies. And I said, look, it's got to change. Somebody has to step up. Somebody has to acknowledge that things have, are changing. The world is changing. The data is changing. And it is time to change our policies with them. I bring it all up to say that on Saturday afternoon, the NFL finally did that. Credit to the NFL, who along with their players and the Players Association have decided to adjust their COVID policies. Now, going forward, players who are vaccinated and asymptomatic no longer have to test. There will still be kind of a small sample size of of vaccinated players that are getting tested periodically just to kind of keep things in checks and balance. But the NFL does the first thing in the right direction, not only for sports, but I believe this could have trickle-down effects to society as a whole as the NFL has finally looked at the data and they've said we have to adjust our policies. We cannot keep going on like this. Really quickly, a couple quick thoughts on it. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, as I said. First of all, I want to reiterate, like, and, and I don't even know if I did a good enough job about this on Friday's show, but I, I do understand this virus is serious, right? And, and so this isn't me coming on, don't get vaccinated, don't do this, don't, like, like, no. First of all, everybody has to take their own precautions. Everybody has to do what they believe is best for them, and everybody has to proceed cautiously and be smart about what they're doing, who they're hanging out with, how they're traveling, all that good stuff. I'm not saying don't be cautious. I'm not saying be reckless. But what I am saying is we have a ton of data at this point, really about the broad sample size of who this virus affects, how seriously it affects people. And there's a couple things. One, we've known this for a while, but the virus in the most serious cases mostly are elderly people and people that have underlying health conditions. And so I bring that up because to bring it back to sports, and this is a sports show and I want to keep it on sports, that was why I was yelling and screaming the other day. Because young athletes under the best medical supervision in the world that are healthy, I don't want to say they're not at risk, but what I am saying is, especially when they're vaccinated, they are essentially not at risk. And so it was time to adjust the policies. It was time to change. And the biggest frustration, I think, for me about how the sports and the sporting world was handling this virus is that we were still treating information about positive tests related to the vaccine like it was you know, January of 2021 when the vaccine was first getting rolled out, right? And again, I don't mean to be political, but like the bottom line is we now know that the vaccine does not stop the spread of the virus among vaccinated people. It just doesn't. That is the reality that we live with. And it is important to note that that is actually kind of normal. The reason you get a new flu shot every single year is because viruses mutate. They change. The shot that you got last year doesn't work this year. And so that was my frustration on Friday's show. And that was my frustration with these policies is we now have indisputable proof that the, that the vaccine does not eliminate the virus. It is not going to stop the virus, but instead it limits the effect 
effects of the virus when it hits you. That's what a vaccine is supposed to do. That's a good thing. And so I thought the NFL, I thought the sporting world had to adjust their policies, and I'm so glad that they did. Last little thought. Um, I do find it ironic, and I promise we're not going to spend 20 minutes on this like we did the other day. Last little thought. Um, I did find it very ironic that the weekend that the NFL made the decision that we are going to scale back our testing, scale back and adjust with the times, adjust with the data, and we are not going to punish players who did everything that was asked of them, the NBA did the exact opposite. And I think anybody who knows this show, who knows me, knows where I stand on that. I'm not a big fan of Adam Silver, okay? He gets praised ad nauseum on Twitter, on social media. Oh, my God, he's the greatest commissioner. What has he done? Ratings are tanking. For about three, four, five years, there was no parity in the sport at all. The Warriors are winning everything, and the Cavaliers are winning everything. On top of that, players are coming and going. They're breaking contracts. They're demanding trade. Like, I don't know what Adam Silver does well, and I find it ironic that Roger Goodell, who is a public punching bag, he and his players' union and, and the powers that be in the NFL made the decision, we're moving on, we're adjusting, we are taking the information available to us, and we are adjusting what we do and how we do it. The NBA did the exact opposite this weekend. They decided that rather than limiting testing like the NFL, they instead are doing the opposite and increasing testing, increasing mask wearing, even when every piece of data says that that is not going to matter in terms of the spread of the virus. And so I think it's going to be something to watch out here over the next couple of weeks. I think it's going to be fascinating to see what happens in the NBA, major college sports, the NHL, all of these leagues, because the NFL has already set the standard. The NBA is reverting backwards, basically looking at the data, ripping up the piece of paper and deciding we're going to go with our March 2020 game plan and it's not going to work. And I don't know how many, how closely you guys follow regular season basketball, but the NBA had to cancel two, three games on Sunday. They've had to cancel games going forward into next week because they have increased testing, changed their protocols in a way that is more restrictive. And all, all I'll say as I wrap this topic, I wonder when NBA players start to push back, right? Because I don't think that there was any league that was more active in talking about the importance of the vaccine in talking about you need to get the vaccine, you need to do this, you need to do that. Kyrie Irving was a, you know, a villain for months because he refused to get the vaccine, because he decided to ask tough questions. And you had every media member, every talking head, every person who covers the NBA just destroying him. Selfish, this, that, the other thing. Well, guess what? I wonder how Kevin Durant feels today, now in the virus protocol, in the COVID protocol, after he got the vaccine, after he did what the NBA told him, and they are not rewarding him at all for doing what it was right and following the data. I wonder how James Harden feels. I wonder how the Nets team as a whole feels with several players in COVID protocols, very likely with very minimal symptoms, and not to say you can't get sick. I'm not saying he can't get sick. But we now know the vaccine helps limit the sickness, helps limit how seriously ill you get. And I just wonder what Kevin Durant is thinking right now as he has to sit out. We're welcoming back Kyrie Irving. We were told he was a villain for not getting the vaccine. And guess what? The next time the Nets take the court, there's a chance Kyrie Irving, I know he's in protocols right now, but there's a chance that he could take the court before Kevin Durant does. But again, I'm just curious how soon the NBA pushes back, how soon the NHL pushes back, because we now have indisputable evidence the NFL is doing the right thing I give them credit I also hope as it pertains to this show that major college sports does the same I think well, there's a lot of frustration Rick Barnes's comments after the Memphis cancellation very much reflected that everyone in the world of college sports is ready to move on and so I do believe it will be fascinating 
But I wouldn't be doing my due diligence if I didn't say that we talked about this on Friday. We follow up with it today. And now let's get to some regular sports, right? Like, like, like that's the, the tough mean, boring, uh, you know, stuff we got to, you know, basically the Shawshank Redemption, the crap that we got to crawl through to get to the meat of the show. And so let's get to some of that fun stuff. And let's hit on another topic that we discussed on last Friday's show. Obviously, last Friday, we talked a lot about the COVID stuff, which I just hit on. We talked about signing day, Travis Hunter, all that good stuff. We had my buddy Jeff Colhane on, really fun interview that I think you guys enjoyed. But we also talked a little bit about Urban Meyer. And on Friday's show, we talked a lot about his firing in Jacksonville, why it didn't work. I talked a little bit about why I was disappointed from both perspectives, both the Jacksonville Jaguars perspective and, of course, the uh, and of course beyond that, Urban Meyer's perspective. But after that show posted, what was interesting was this. I got a few DMs asking about a follow-up on that topic as well, basically asking me one simple question. All right, Aaron, clearly did not work for Urban Meyer in the NFL, but could you see the scenario where he comes back and coaches college football again. And what I would say is, it's a topic I thought about a lot over the weekend, made a few phone calls, and I'll also say that it's a topic that my opinion has really changed on over the last two, three, four months. And I bring that up, I bring up that last part, how my opinion has changed, because if you remember, this is actually a topic that we did hit on about two, two and a half, three months ago. Brett McMurphy, well-respected reporter, college football reporter, been on the beat forever. If you remember back in, I don't know, September, I think it was right around the time that Urban Meyer got caught in the bar, dirty dancing, Havana Nights with the woman that was not his wife. At that time, Brett McMurphy did a poll, an anonymous poll of current FBS college athletic directors. And in that poll, he basically texted him and asked him one simple question. Would you ever hire Urban Meyer as your next head football coach? And I think it was some crazy number. I think it was 79% said there is no way we would never hire Urban Meyer as our next football coach. And if you remember, I came on this show the next day and said 79% of athletic directors are lying. They would hire him in a minute. So at the time, even as recently as two, two and a half, three months ago, I said, I do think that most of these athletic directors would hire him. I do think if their backs were against the wall, if they needed to nail their football coaching hire, that he would be their guy. But again, like I said, a lot has changed. And what has mostly changed is exactly what just happened in Jacksonville, where for the third time in his career, Urban Meyer crashed and burned and had, in the NFL, he didn't have success. The, the previous two stops, he had a ton of success, but it ended really badly. And this, in many ways, is now strike three. And in some ways, I feel like Urban Meyer is out after strike three. I mean, just go back and think about it, right? The Florida thing. He comes in, guns blazing, wins a national title in year two, wins another title a few years later, but we all know it ended not very well. Bunch of arrests, bunch of off-the-field issues. By the time that Will Muschamp takes over, the program is a complete dumpster fire, and I'm not saying Will Muschamp was the answer or he was ever going to be great at Florida. I don't believe that he would have been, but I just bring it up because Will Muschamp basically had no chance, and we are now on the fourth different head coach at Florida in the last decade that in many ways are still trying to clean up Urban Meyer's mess. Then there was what happened at Ohio State. Zach Smith, we all know the deal. Accusations, this, blah, blah, blah. But it was clear that Urban Meyer was letting stuff slide. And then finally, what happened in Jacksonville over the last couple of weeks where, again, it wasn't just that he got fired for wins and losses. As a matter of fact, it wasn't why he got fired at all. It was because he continued to lie. He continued to bend the truth. He continued to prove himself to be basically a disingenuous person, uh, lying from everything about, oh, I worked with Chris Doyle, the strength and conditioning coach. No, you didn't. A simple Google search tells you that. Well, James Robinson was hurt. That's why I didn't go back in. No, that's not true at all. You just didn't play him. 
oh, uh, I wasn't dancing with that woman. I got dragged out to the dance floor. Oh, no, you were bumping and grinding and doing what? You know, the lies just kept adding up. And so I do think that when you think about these college athletic departments, I just think that that the th- it has changed. If Urban Meyer had just lost in Jacksonville and he had just not been good enough in Jacksonville, you could always fall back on, well, he tried, it didn't work out, he's a college football guy. But for it to crash and burn, for it to crash and burn, there's going to be a lot of college athletic directors and most importantly, school presidents that have to sit there and say, do I want this guy to be the face of my entire university? Because with all due respect to all the college presidents and ADs and boosters that, that listen to this show, um, I'm just telling you, nobody knows who the president of your school is except for the most prominent alums, but they know who the football coach is. And so to me, I think there's a lot of uh, athletic directors that just would not, or there are a lot of school presidents that just won't sign off on Urban Meyer. Even before the Jacksonville Jaguars stuff, there were reports that USC tried to hire him two years ago and the school president just wouldn't allow it. And so now you have the Jacksonville Jaguars. Now you have him being, um, you know, sketchy in public with a woman that's not his wife. It's just a hard sell as a face of a university. I would also say in terms of why I don't know if he'll ever be hired again, I do think recruiting is going to be a lot tougher, right? And this is a guy that I think you could argue, you know, he and Nick Saban, one in 1A, Pete Carroll was there when Pete Carroll was in college football. But in terms of the best recruiters in the modern era of college football, Urban Meyer is right at the top. He did it at Florida. He did it at Ohio State. Much of the success that Ohio State is still having is thanks to the infrastructure that was put in place by Urban Meyer. Jim Harbaugh just said it the other day when he beat Ohio State. He said Ryan Day thinks he was born on he was born on third base and thinks he had a triple. That was basically saying Ryan Day is still taking advantage of the infrastructure that was put into place by Urban Meyer. But I do wonder, as if Urban Meyer were to get a head coaching job, I do think it would be harder for him to recruit for a few reasons. One, we now have a track record again. Even in college, give him three to five years, and he's going to burn out, and he's going to flame out. And so if you're a parent that is being that has a son that is being recruited, I think you got to ask two things. I think you have to ask, one, morally, this guy is going to come into your home and sell family first. I care about your son. I'm going to treat him as my own. Um, you know, is Urban Meyer the stepdad that you want watching over your son for the next three, four years? And to be clear, I don't really care that he was dirty dancing Havana nights with a woman that wasn't his wife, but I think parents do. I think being on video matters. I think the reports that he kicked a player matters if you're thinking about sending your son to coach to, to, to be play for Urban Meyer. But then I think also you have to consider the other the other aspect of it as well. Every three to five years, it ends in disaster. And so if your son, or maybe not three to five, maybe that's being disingenuous, five to six, five to seven, something like that. But if your son only has three to five years to play college football, do you want to send him to a place where you know the coach probably won't be there in five, six years from now? Maybe year one, you can recruit well. Maybe year two. But can year five, six, seven, can he continue to recruit well? If parents know that this guy has a track record, give him two or three years, and he's already going to be looking for the side door exit. So to me, I think it's going to be really hard for him to continue to recruit at the level that he has. And I would also say this, too, is I, I do think recruiting has changed a lot in college football, right? Like, like what he did at Ohio State was so transformative and so fascinating and so interesting. He basically took the SEC blueprint, brought it to Ohio State. And you know what happened? He took the Big Ten by storm. And for years and years and years, the talent gap between Ohio State and everybody else in the Big Ten and really everybody else outside of Alabama and maybe Clemson was just astronomical. Well, guess what? A lot of people have learned from that. 
Michigan, of course, just signed a top 10 class in the country. And I'm not saying that it, it was equivalent of Ohio State, which was a top five class. But Michigan now has a million analysts and player personnel directors and all the stuff that Ohio State was doing three, four, five years ago. Penn State just signed the number six class in the country, headlined by a guy that some believe is the top quarterback in the country in Drew Alar. Um, I thought it was very interesting. Lincoln Riley, USC, they are implementing basically the Urban Meyer uh, recruiting blueprint at USC of analysts and this and that and all this funding, all this money going into recruiting. It's what Mario Cristobal is doing at Miami. Billy Napier, when he was hired at Florida, the exact quote he said, we're going to bring in an army of people to make this the best recruiting juggernaut in the country. And so uh, like all the advantages that Urban Meyer had, I don't know if he's going to be there anymore. And then I think the final reason why I'm just not sold that he's ever going to be a head coach at the college football level again is how many jobs is he really interested in having? I mean, this is a guy we all know that he went to Ohio State because tactically he was just like, dude, I can go here and I can win immediately and I can win big. And there's really like two or three games on the schedule. And other than that, we're going to rock and roll, and we're going to be fine. And we're going to beat Purdue by 30, and we're going to beat uh, Illinois by 30. We're going to beat Indiana by 30. And so I just bring it up because how many jobs would really interest him? I don't think uh, Urban Meyer's not going back to college to coach the group of five, okay? He's not going back to coach Florida Atlantic or Liberty or Texas whatever, Northern Tech. Like, he's not doing that. But then even among the power five, I mean, how many jobs would really interest him? Would, I don't know. I mean, they never hire him, but like, would Vanderbilt interest him? No, I don't think he's. I don't, he's not coming back to college to coach Vanderbilt. He's not coming back to college to coach Purdue. He's not coming back to college to coach Washington State. If he's coming back, he's coming back for one of those big boy jobs where he can again win at the highest level. And so, to me, you know, you start to piece together all the stuff I said with the facts that there might only be seven to ten jobs in the country that are that would interest him many of which by the way were filled this year so you know it's going to be two or three years before Miami's looking for a coach again Notre Dame which would never hire him is looking for a coach again Oklahoma whatever and so those are the reasons that I don't think that he will probably be a college head coach but in terms of the possibilities of why I think he could become a head coach I think it's really simple and this is going to be much shorter than why he won't be it's because it only takes one school it only takes one school that is tired of losing, that is tired of getting beat up by their rivals, that is tired of getting embarrassed to just say, you know what, there's only one guy out there, right? Like, like, like It's the old plot from a movie. There's only one man for the job. And so I think it's easy to list off all the reasons why no one will ever hire him again, but it only takes one, right? It only took one with Rick Pitino, and I know Rick Pitino did go to the lower level. I don't think Urban Meyer is doing that, but it only takes one. And I think it's so easy to sit here today, a couple days after he got fired in Jacksonville, and say, it's never going to happen. Well, never forget on the other side, a year ago, do you remember what happened a year ago? Texas, behind the scenes, before they hired Tom Herman and hired Steve, before they fired Tom Herman and hired Steve Sarkeesian, the boosters at Texas were working behind the scenes to try to hire Urban Meyer. The reports were they were going to offer him $10 million over 10 years, $100 million. That seemed like insane money a year ago. It's, it's chump change now after what Mel Tucker and Brian Kelly and Mario Cristobal and James Franklin did. But I bring it up because it was a year ago that literally Texas was trying to get Urban Meyer to come back to college football. On top of that, I, I, I just think, not even on top of that, just, just to, to, take that step, uh, to take that thought a step further. That's why I can't shake the idea that this guy could be a college head coach again. What happens if Steve Sarkeesian goes 5-7 and seven again next year? You think Texas is just going to be okay with going 5-7 and seven from now into perpetuity? 
And, and at that point, Texas will have gone through Charlie Strong. They'll have gone through Tom Herman. They'll have gone through Steve Sarkeesian. If Steve Sarkeesian doesn't work, if he goes 5-7 and seven next year, you think there aren't Texas fans that are going to say, there's only one guy that could get us back to where we need to go, and it's Urban Meyer. What happens, by the way, if Florida State has another disastrous season and Deion Sanders doesn't want to come home? You think Florida State fans are going to be happy losing in perpetuity forever while Miami's potentially rebuilding under Mario Cristobal, while Clemson's awesome, while Florida's maybe rebuilding under Billy Napier? No. They're mad at Mike Norvell right now. I said it on last Friday's show. I think Mike Norvell better win a bunch of games to get people to forget about the Travis Hunter thing. But if Mike Norvell goes 5-7 and seven again last next year after losing the number one in the recruit in the country to an FCS school that's coached by their most prominent alum, it's going to be tough to justify bringing him back for year four. I'll give you another one. I talked last week about the Ryan Day Chicago Bears rumors, okay? What happens if Ryan Day does take an NFL job? And what happens if Luke Fickle says, you know what? Cincinnati's going to the Big 12. We just made the playoff. I'm good here. This is my, Ohio State was my home. This is my new home. What does Ohio State do then? It's easy to say, well, never take Urban Meyer. I mean, I don't think Ohio State would because of the president and bureaucracy and whatever. But it's easy for everyone right now to say that they wouldn't take Urban Meyer. What happens if, Lincoln Riley leaves for the NFL in a year. What happens if Mario Cristobal crashes and burns and another coach bombs at Miami? What happens if Brent Venables isn't the guy at Oklahoma? I mean, I could go on and on and on. What happens if Marcus Freeman, who I think is going to be really good, first-time head coach, next year he goes 7-5, and five, next year after he goes 5-7, and seven, then what? So I'm just saying, it's easy to sit here and say right now that I do not believe that Urban Meyer will ever be a head coach again because if you ask me right now, I would lean toward he will never coach major college football again. But I can't sit there and say that definitively because it really only does take one. And you just never know. All right, this is what I want to do. I want to take a quick break. I will come back and we'll talk a little Texas A&M. Final football story, then we'll get to some basketball. Uh, And the reason I want to talk Texas A&M is they signed the number one class in the country on Wednesday. They've gotten two additional five stars since then. And I just think it's a fascinating conversation of, is this a program on the rise? And is this a program that in a year or two can really topple Alabama and Georgia to win the national championship? From there, we'll talk some hoops with Kentucky. How about Kentucky? Big win, some other hoops, odds, and ends. I will be right back. All right, we're going to get to just one minute. I do want to welcome back our favorite sponsor, and your lady's favorite sponsor. Yeah, I'm talking about Manscaped, the worldwide leader in men's below-the-waist grooming. Christmas is coming, and they have some great new gifts for the special man in your life, including, besides just the -the below-the-waist stuff, how about two-in-one shampoo, body wash? They both smell amazing. Fellas, get it. Your lady will not be able to keep her hands off of you. Ladies, you get it. You won't be able to keep your hands off your man. Here's the best part, though. If you use promo code TORRES, you get an incredible deal just for listeners of the Aaron Torres pod, 20% off plus free shipping. Ladies, as I always tell you, the code works for you too. Get your man that special Christmas gift. Before we get to the body wash and two-in-one shampoo, I should mention, by the way, uh, let's get back to the the, the below-the-waist stuff, right? The Performance Package 4.0, which is not just the trimmer, but a bunch of other products that come with it. And here's the bottom line, fellas. We've all used the other products, and it never works out well. Nick's cut snags, awful. Don't have to worry about it with Manscaped, especially the Performance Package 4.0, which comes with the signature Lawnmower 4.0, an electric trimmer with proprietary advanced skin-safe technology to get all those tough-to-reach places. Fellas, you know what I'm talking about. The best part, 
It is waterproof. You can bring it in the shower. Don't have to leave a mess on the floor. Don't have to get yelled at. All thanks to Manscaped, manscaped.com, promo code Taurus. In addition to the Lawnmower 4.0, the Performance Package 4.0 also comes with the Crop Preserver and Crop Reviver and anti-chafing ball deodorant, moisturizer, and toner. It's time to keep your North Pole feeling fresh and smelling fresh, fellas, again. You know what I'm talking about. Finally, the Performance Package 4.0 comes with anti-chafing boxers that leave your junk feeling fresh all day. As I like to say, the perfect package for your package. Beyond that, though, let's get to the new stuff because Manscaped basically, this, this winter, they said, look, it can't just be about men's below-the-waist grooming. That is really important. That's what you get the Performance Package 4.0 for. But how about above the waist? How about we keep them smelling nice? How about we get that hair feeling tingly? Well, that's exactly what Manscaped has done uh, with the Ultra Premium Body Wash. This stuff smells good. It smells incredible. Your lady will not be able to keep your hands off, off of you. And on top of that, I just mentioned your hair feeling tingly. That's the good part. They now have two-in-one shampoo and conditioner. Get it for your friends. Get it for your family. It smells incredible. It's hydrating. It makes your hair feel fresh. I am telling you, I've been using this stuff. The ladies, well, one lady can't keep her hands off me. You know who that is, my special lady in my life. Manscaped.com. Make sure you use promo code Taurus. Here's the last part, too, by the way. Manscaped right now, the entire website has a 20% off plus free shipping. So I do need need you to do me a favor. When you go there, when you get your performance package 4.0, when you get your two-in-one body shampoo, and by the way, I'll mention this. I bought the body shampoo, or I bought the body wash. I bought the two-in-one shampoo for friends, family, loved ones. It's a great gift. It smells good. Get it, manscaped.com. What I was saying was this, though, is that the the website currently has a 20% off plus free shipping promo. So make sure on that last page, when you get to checkout and they give you the site-wide promo, click out of that, then add promo code Torres so that I get credit for sending you because, again, Manscaped loves us. Torres loves you. Manscaped.com. I'm telling you, the body wash and shampoo are incredible. They got new cologne. It's not just about the waist any, below the waist anymore. You get you're a little embarrassed. You don't want to get a trimmer. You don't want to do this. You should get the Performance Package 4.0. But if you don't want to, cologne, body wash, shampoo, two-in-one. It's great. Manscaped.com, promo code Torres. Your balls will thank you. Your body will thank you. Your hair will thank you. And most importantly, Aaron Torres will thank you. Now let's get back to the show. All right, everybody, I'm back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Thank you again to our sponsors at Manscaped. Uh, Once again, I'm just telling you, not telling you how to spend your loose change here, but I did, I will tell you, I did get some friends and family, the body wash and uh, shampoo in the lead up to Christmas, gave it out even before Christmas, and I'm telling you, I've gotten some responses. People love it. It smells good. Uh, Great last-minute holiday gift. Again, manscaped.com. Use promo code TORS. Obviously, also the promo code will be good after the holidays if you want to get some stuff post-holidays. With that said, though, let's get back. One last football topic before we do get to basketball. And boy, do we have some basketball to talk about with what Kentucky did on Saturday to North Carolina. But let's start with college football. Let's end with college football for this episode. And let's talk about kind of a follow-up from Wednesday afternoon, Thursday, Friday show. And that was the conversation that I kind of had on Texas A&M on last Friday's show. I kind of talked a lot about Travis Hunter, talked a lot about Dion, and I briefly mentioned, oh, by the way, Texas A&M signed the number one high school class in the country. But what was interesting was Texas A&M was not done. Since I last recorded, they have signed two more five stars and added one of the top transfers in college football. This is after signing day. They've added two five stars and one of the top transfers in college football. And so I'm just going to sit here and say, 
I know it sounds crazy. I know it seems absurd. But after what Texas A&M did on last Wednesday and what they've done since and what they could still do in the late signing period, I think it's time that we start having the conversation that over the next two, three, four years, Texas A&M could turn into the next great superpower in college football. I know it feels a little aggressive. I know it feels a little insane, but I'm going to explain to you why if you look at the stats, if you look at the data, it really is not as crazy as you think. And to backtrack, I really do think this whole story really goes back to Wednesday where it really was surreal to watch in real time. Uh, I told you about it a little bit on Friday's show, but Texas A&M came into the day with the number three class in America, and then it seemed like every hour on the hour, they were just getting another guy after another guy after another guy to the point that there were times where I was tuning in and kind of half paying attention, and I thought they were showing replays of previous guys to commit only to see that in actuality, oh no, this is a new five-star guy that has committed since then. I mean, it started early. Jake Johnson, number one tight end in America. He commits. That's the brother of Max Johnson, the former LSU quarterback, son of Brad Johnson, the NFL uh, quarterback. He commits early. Then from there, you have a Nye White from Philadelphia, five-star defensive lineman, four-star defensive lineman Anthony Lucas, four-star offensive lineman Cam Dewberry, on and on and on and on and on. And like I said, it seemed like every hour on the hour, Texas A&M was getting another commitment from another top 100 player, and they closed Wednesday with the number one class in America. If that is where they ended, it would have been an incredible, incredible day, month, and year for Jimbo Fisher and his staff in the 2022 signing period. But here's the thing. After signing day ended on Wednesday, you know what happened? Thursday, they officially got a signature from Evan Stewart, five-star wide receiver. He had been committed to A&M throughout this cycle, but there was talk that late in the process he could flip. The number two wide receiver in America, five-star wide receiver, officially signs his letter of intent on Thursday. Then on Friday, Max Johnson, the transfer quarterback from LSU, LSU starting quarterback for most of last year, makes the decision that he, in fact, is going to transfer to Texas A&M following his brother, Jake Johnson, the number one tight end in America. And then on Saturday, how about this? Denver Harris, five-star cornerback, number three cornerback in the country behind the kid Travis Hunter that committed to uh, Jackson State on top of Damani Jackson, who committed to USC, which we'll talk about in a minute. Denver Harris, the number three corner in the country, committed to Texas A&M. And so you now have a class, number one class coming out of Wednesday. You add the number two wide receiver in America. You add one of the top transfer quarterbacks in America. You add the number three cornerback in the country, and it is incredible. And this is where A&M's recruiting class currently stands if nothing else happens. Right now, A&M has 15 of the top 100 players in America signed to go to Texas A&M. 15! 15 of the top 100 players in America, which is absolutely insane. Of the top 70, of the top, let me put it this way, of the top 17 players in Texas that have committed, 10 are going to Texas A&M. There are three, I believe, that are uncommitted, and I should mention that number is even a little bit deceptive because of the fact that a couple were quarterbacks, a couple were guys that Texas wasn't going to take because of the fact that you only take one quarterback in a class. And so you talk about a Texas hall in recruiting. It is absolutely insane. 15 of the top 100 players, and I should mention, there are two top 10 players that are currently unsigned, uncommitted, one of which is uh, is Harold Perkins, a linebacker from Cypress, Texas, Texas A&M lean. And also on top of that, Shamar Stewart, 
Texas A&M lean, a defensive lineman from Florida. And so I bring it up because, listen, I don't want to say this is recruiting unlike anything that we've ever seen, but for Texas A&M to elevate number one class in the country, add two more guys after signing day, and have two more five stars leaning in their direction, we could be looking at one of the great recruiting classes in all time, which brings me to what I just said a minute ago. Are we looking at a scenario where Texas A&M eventually elevates itself into one of the premier programs in college football that can, on a year-in, year-out basis, compete with Alabama, compete with Ohio State, compete with whoever those top teams are two, three, four years from now? Because I think it's possible, and I think we have to accept the fact that in the next three or four years, there is a chance that we could see Jimbo Fisher hoisting that national championship trophy over his head. And I know it sounds crazy, and I know Texas A&M's coming off an 8-4 year, and I know they lost to Coach O and LSU on the final day of the regular season, but we have kind of data to back up the fact that when you sign the number one class in the country and you do what Texas A&M has done over a four, five, six-year sample size now under Jimbo Fisher, that eventually a national championship game appearance, if not a national championship game, is going uh, a national championship itself is going to come. And that's what's so interesting, right, is that, look, there are some times in life where and in sports where narratives in sports are overrated but one that is not and I'm not the first person to talk about this but one narrative that is not overrated in sports at all is the idea that recruiting matters because when your team has a bad recruiting class or you lose a kid or whatever you always oh recruiting is not that important well here's the deal we now have data over about a 20-year sample size since these recruiting rankings were first starting to kind of become a thing popular on the internet recruiting became a national billion-dollar industry we now have data from about 20 years, and the data is indisputable. While you, and when I say you, when, when, while the recruiting rankings may miss on a guy or two or this or that, while a coach might not be able to deliver the talent, get it over the hump, win a national championship, if you are bringing in the types of classes that Jimbo Fisher is bringing in, history tells us, statistically we know, that there is a very good chance that you're going to be competing for national championships in the very short term, okay? So I looked up these stats before they came on the show. This is courtesy of 24-7 Sports. Of the last 19 number one recruiting classes coming into this cycle, okay, of the last 19 recruiting classes that were number one in the country, 13 of them in the four years after that number one recruiting class, 13 of 19 have played for a national championship. And 11 of 19 number one recruiting classes have ultimately won a national championship. So basically, we have a pretty good track record over two decades that Jimbo Fisher, by signing the number one recruiting class, is going to, there's a 75% chance that he is going to play for a national championship and about a 50% chance that he is going to win a national championship. And I should mention, by the way, that a lot of the classes that quote-unquote didn't pan out, number one classes that didn't ultimately end up competing or winning national championships, it was because there was a coaching change somewhere involved, right? Pete Carroll signed a couple number one classes late in his coaching tenure. He leaves, NCAA sanctions is get issued, and so that's kind of a deal right there. Uh, Randy Shannon, believe it or not, at Miami signed a number one recruiting class. He did not get to the finish line with that group before they were before he was ultimately let go. Urban Meyer, we just talked about Urban Meyer a minute ago, signed a number one class at Florida, and he left uh, shortly after he signed that class back, and I believe it was 09, which was the number one class in the country. Uh, statistically, according to the numbers, still one of the two or three best classes of all time. And so essentially, the data tells us that if you sign a number one ranked recruiting class and you stick it out for four years with those players, 
there's a f- more than a 50% chance that you're going to at least be, uh, there's more than a 75% chance that you are going to be competing, playing for a national championship game, national championship, and there is more than a 50% chance that you are going to win a national championship. And so you add that to the fact that every single team that has won a national championship in the last 20 years has signed at least one top 10 recruiting class. And oh, by the way, most of them have signed two, three, or four in the four years prior to their national championship. You're looking at a situation where you can make fun of Jimbo Fisher. You can make fun of Texas A&M. You can say it'll never happen. You can say this. You can say that. You can say Bama. You can say whatever. I'm just telling you, the data backs up that A&M is about to go on a two, three-year run here that could be unprecedented in their school recent history. Keep in mind, this isn't just a one-year blip on the radar recruiting-wise. This is now the fourth straight year uh, since Jimbo Fisher took over, 19, 20, 21, 22, that they have signed a top 10 class. And beyond that, again, the data tells you, you sign a number one class, you're going to be in really good shape. And I would also say everything else is kind of in place, right? They're in the SEC. They have great facilities. They have a coach that has done it before, which I don't think can be undervaluated and underexpressed in this particular situation. Jimbo Fisher knows what it takes to win a national championship. He's done it. He's made a college football playoff. He had AM on the brink last year, and now you start to elevate the talent across the program over the three, four, five years of the kids in the program, and it's a complete game changer. And so I'm not saying that tomorrow they're going out and beating Alabama and taking over the SEC. But what I am saying is over the next three, four, five years, is there going to be a scenario where Texas A&M is in the college football playoff? I think so. Is there a scenario where Texas A&M is going to be competing for a national championship? I think so. Is there a possibility that over the next two, three, four years, if A&M continues to recruit this way in subsequent years, that there's multiple playoff appearances, multiple national title game appearances, potentially multiple national championships? I think so. You got the coach. Uh, You have now three good quarterbacks in the program with the kid Haynes King, who started the season as starting quarterback before he got hurt. Now Max Johnson, now Connor Wegman, the five-star that came in in this current 2022 class. And oh, by the way, they're off to a pretty good start in 2023 as well. So I'm just telling you, don't shoot the messenger. But history tells us that Texas A&M has a chance to be a national championship threat in the coming years. Finally, just a couple other odds and ends from kind of college football before we get to the weekend that was in basketball. First of all, I do think it's worth noting, uh, I just mentioned it a minute ago, Damani Jackson, the number two cornerback in college football or in high school football. Since I last recorded, he committed to USC on Friday. Not ultimately that shocking. He was committed to USC, decommitted when Clay Helton got fired, came down to USC and Alabama. But this is a big one, and this is a big one because this is the first kid that committed to USC, like marquee kid, five-star kid, that committed to USC under Lincoln Riley that had no previous ties to Lincoln Riley before he got to the school, okay? So Lincoln Riley gets hired. He brings in Relique Brown, a five-star that was committed to Oklahoma, flips him to USC, flips a couple kids that are in the younger classes, the 2023 class, Malachi Nelson, the the number two quarterback in the junior class right now behind Arch Manning. Uh, But all those guys had previous ties, and most of them were committed to him at Oklahoma. So this is a big one for USC because of the fact that, oh, by the way, no ties to Lincoln Riley, and I, it, it's a big one. 
there's no other way to put it. It is a big one. It's a big one for Lincoln Riley. It's a big one for USC. Damani Jackson, top 10 recruit, uh, number three corner in the country, is committed to USC. And I'll just be curious to see how USC closes on signing day. They're already off to a hot start in 2023. Give Lincoln Riley and his staff a full cycle, and I'm excited to see what happens. Uh, a couple other news and notes. Dylan Gabriel, the former U, uh, Central Florida UCF quarterback, committed to UCLA this week. I think that's a big one. 32 touchdown passes last year during COVID, explosive player, got hurt this year, didn't really play, the, the system under Gus Malzahn didn't really fit for him. He moves on, this is a big one for UCLA. UCLA had a really effective running attack this year with Dorian, Dorian Thompson-Robinson, um, not nearly as good passing the ball, but Dylan Gabriel gives him that element. He is originally from Hawaii. This is a big win for UCLA as they try to build on momentum from this year's 8-4 and four season. Obviously, they're going to the Holiday Bowl playing next week. All right, final note. We don't have to spend too much time on this, but Casey Thompson, who was Texas's starter at the end of this past season, he also entered the transfer portal on Friday. And look, I'm not going to belabor the point, but this just further proves Quinn Ewers is going to be the starter next year at Texas. And it was so funny, right? Because uh, on Saturday, I was kind of watching some bowl stuff and paying attention. I kind of had on a halftime show uh, for a little bit. And I saw Joey Galloway from ESPN talking about the fact that Quinn Ewers transferred into Texas and Casey Thompson decides to transfer out. And Joey Galloway does the whole, uh, huh, how could whatever happened to good old-fashioned competition? And I'm just like, dude, there's no competition. Like, like, like I, I'm Mr. Stick It Out. It, it, there's a lot of reasons to stick it out and not transfer, but there's no competition. Quinn Ewers is going to be the starter come week one for Texas. If he's healthy, Steve Sarkeesian really has no choice. The NIL dollars are, are flowing. Steve Sarkeesian needs a public win. Quinn Ewers is going to be the starter. Now Casey Thompson, the backup to Quinn Ewers, is in the transfer portal. All right, I think that's it for this segment of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. What I want to do, I want to take one quick break. I do want to come back, just kind of recap college hoops. I thought it was a pretty quiet weekend in college hoops overall. Big story, of course, Kentucky getting its signature win over North Carolina. I'll be back to discuss that. A couple other games across the board. Providence gets a win over UConn. A couple other stories, but nothing, nothing super major. I'll be back to talk about college hoops coming up next. All right, everybody, I am back. Going to be back. Going to be back. Final segment of the show. We did a lot of football do want to wrap with some basketball. And speaking of basketball, I should mention, for any Kentucky fans that listen, for any Indiana fans that listen, we now have Torres Media merch. That's right. We are selling T-shirts, the Mike Effin Woodson T-shirts for Indiana fans, my main man, Mike Woodson. Get them for your Indiana friends. Get them for yourself, Mike Effin Woodson, favorite coach of all time. Also, Kentucky fans, the Revenge Tour tees are in, fire shirts, uh, Calipari, Orlando Antigua, Chin Coleman on one t-shirt. It's a fire t-shirt. AaronTorresOnline.com. There is a merchandise tab. You can see it all there. Uh, Arkansas fans, Big Pig Invasion shirts are coming. Alabama fans will have some cool stuff for you. UConn, Tennessee, other schools. We're going to have some cool stuff in the coming weeks. But Revenge Tour tees, Mike Woodson tees, do your boy a favor, buy them. I spent a ton of time uh, looking for printers, uh, uh, designers, whatever. But they're really cool t-shirts. I encourage you to check them out. Speaking of the Revenge Tour, let's talk a little bit about college basketball because it was a weirdly 
busy weekend, but a weirdly quiet weekend as well. And really, we're, we're kind of at that time right now where there's not going to be a ton in college hoops here over the next four, five, six days. There wasn't a much the last four, five, six days, right? We have finals in certain schools. Schools are taking time uh, to pause for uh, Christmas time. Schools on top of that, now we have COVID issues. And so we had what looked like a really big schedule this weekend. And then when you really boil it down, not all that much of note happened. There was one really big story, though, and it came from America's best city, my favorite city, Las Vegas. Unfortunately, Ohio State could not show up because of COVID. Unfortunately, UCLA could not show up because of COVID. Some would argue North Carolina didn't really show up, not because of COVID, because they stunk. But Kentucky played North Carolina and was ultimately the only game of the CBS Sports Classic. And Kentucky put on a butt whooping. Final score, 98-67. to Kentucky, they're back. Okay, they're definitely not back. But what I will say is this. This was the biggest win, the most impressive win for Kentucky since the season finale of 2020 when they clinched an SEC title at Florida without Ashton Higgins, their starting point guard. Great day to be a Kentucky Wildcat. And hopefully this is a sign of things to come. And what I want to do before we get into Saturday's game, let's just go back a week ago when Kentucky lost at Notre Dame. And if you remember, and let me say, as I always do, I get a lot of stuff wrong. We do a segment called Where Aaron Was Right, Where Aaron Was Wrong every week to highlight all of the dumb things I say on this show over the course of any given week. But what did I tell you a week ago about Kentucky after they lost to Notre Dame? I had so many of you tweeting at me, DMing me, private, public, whatever. And so many of you asked me, Torres, our offense, we stink this, that, we can't shoot, it's the same as last year. And I said, look, I wouldn't be happy if I was a Kentucky fan. I understand your frustration, but to me, I did not see a team that was on the brink of another 9-15 and losing season when they played at Notre Dame. I saw a team that went on the road for their first true road game. And what I saw and what I talked about on this show, I said, look, I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying I'd be happy with Calipari if I was you. I'm not saying the rotations are figured out. But what I said after that Notre Dame game was this. I said the biggest concern that I saw was that I saw a team that looked a step slow and that was a byproduct of playing nobody for five weeks. And I said, give it another week or two. If Kentucky looks like this against, North, uh, against Ohio State, who they were supposed to play in the CBS Sports Classic, if they look like this against Louisville, if they look like this at the start of SEC play, then it really is time to be concerned and it really is time to wonder what the future of this program is under John Calipari. Instead, Kentucky regrouped and, as I said, put together the best performance that they have in a year and a half. And as I watched that game, one thing stood out. What stood out was the team that I talked about all offseason on this show showed up, and it finally looked like the team that John Calipari put together in this offseason. If you remember, Kentucky, disaster last season, everything falls apart, and what does John Calipari do? Day after the season, two days after the season, whatever, I believe it was Monday after being eliminated from the SEC tournament, so essentially the day after the NCAA tournament bracket was revealed, John Calipari came out and said, look, you better get us now. Because if you don't get us, if you didn't get us this year, we're coming. We're going to be ready for next year. And I spent an abnormal amount of time during the offseason talking about Kentucky because there was like a six-week stretch where every single week something big happened. First, they brought in Orlando Antigua and Chin Coleman. Revenge tour. Get the t-shirts. Then after that, they get, and I don't remember the exact order of how everybody committed, but uh, C.J. Frederick, transfer from Iowa. Severe Wheeler, transfer from Georgia. Ty Ty Washington, five-star top 15 recruit. You then, on top of that, you got Kellen Grady early in the spring. 
And so you started to see the pieces of what looked like more of a modern type college basketball and basketball team in general that wasn't going to have two low post guys that don't know what they're doing, that can't shoot, that can't handle, that are stiffs down low. No disrespect to anybody that was there before. But what you're going to see is more spacing, more three-point shooting, more whatever. And that's exactly what we saw from Kentucky on Saturday. It was, I think, really the best of all worlds where Kentucky just dominated the glass. They were plus 18, out-rebounded North Carolina by 18, but they also had that spacing three-point shooting that you wanted to see. And Saturday was really the day where all of the pieces came together in the way that they need to if you're going to win at the highest level. Not saying they're going to look that good every single night. Not saying this guarantees that they're back. Not saying this guarantees they're the favorite in the SEC going forward. But what we saw is what this team is capable of. First of all, Severe Wheeler, starting point guard, was phenomenal. Best game he's played in a Kentucky uniform, bar none. 26 points, 8 assists, 4 steals. He was that catalyst. He was that veteran point guard that this team has lacked for really two years now, dating back to the 2020 SEC Championship team with Emmanuel Quickly, Tyrese Maxey, and Ashton Hagens, Severe Wheeler. I loved what I saw from him because it wasn't just that he scored a bunch of points and the box score looked good, but he brought the energy on offense, he brought the energy on defense, and I thought it was infectious throughout this entire team in a way that Kentucky just has not had a veteran like that step up and take on that leadership burden in a long time. On top of that, the three-point shooting was there, which was important. Kentucky, I talked about it last week, they spent so much time in the offseason trying to recruit three-point shooting, yet somehow through the early part of the season, they were somehow statistically worse three-point shooting than they had been. And in my head, I don't remember if I talked about it, but I said, look, they have too many talented three-point shooters to keep shooting this poorly, and I don't believe that this is something that is sustainable because this isn't like freshmen coming in that have never proved it at the college level. You have a bunch of guys that have done it at the college level. Davion Mintz was one of the best three-point shooters in the SEC last year, and he was struggling. Well, guess what he did on Saturday? Hit a couple big, uh, hit a, hit a big three. Uh, played better than he has in the past. Davion Mintz came did did well off the bench. I might have said Davion Mitchell. Obviously, I was talking about Davion Mintz if I said Davion Mitchell. On top of that, Kellen Grady. Finally got going. Five three-pointers made. Ty Ty Washington made a three-pointer. Bryce Hopkins made a three-pointer. And overall, Kentucky finished 8 of 15 from three. That was the team that we thought we were going to see. That was what the team looked like. On top of that, the rebounding dominance there, which I just talked about in a minute. And you know what the great sign was about for Kentucky about Saturday? They really did it without two key guys. Oscar Shibway, quote-unquote, they're, they're, they're not quote-unquote their low-post guy, but their low-post star, he's been the bright spot of the early part of the season. Very interesting article by Kyle Tucker, my old buddy who blocked me on Twitter. Uh, Kyle Tucker wrote an interesting article for The Athletic the other day, but Oscar Shibway, quote-unquote, only had 16 points and 12 rebounds on Saturday, which sounds like a loaded stat sheet, but he missed a bunch of time with foul trouble, only played 22 minutes, and Ty Ty Washington, that five-star freshman that I mentioned a minute ago, again struggled in this game, finishing only with, uh, only with nine points to go along with four assists and two steals. And so I bring all that up to just say, Kentucky just beat North Carolina by 29 points, with their best low post player in foul trouble and maybe their most important player in the bigger picture, Ty Ty Washington, struggling because of uh, struggling. He just struggled because he's not in his groove yet. And so to me, this is nothing but a positive for the University of Kentucky going forward. 
I think this is a great sign. This is the team that we thought they were going to be. And I think when I, when I look at this game, two things jump out. First of all, in the bigger picture, it's just great to get that monkey off your back, right? Because if you're a Kentucky fan, you lose to Duke opening night. Okay, well, Duke might be the best team in the country. Paulo Bancaro is going to be the number one pick in the draft. I, as I said on last week's show, I thought Kentucky fans were actually kind of rational about how they, they handled the Duke loss early in the season. Obviously, there were some fans that were really frustrated, but most of them said, look, that team is really good, probably better than most people realized in the preseason, and we're not going to worry. But when you lose at Notre Dame, you start to get those flashbacks to last year. Is it going to be the same? Can we shoot? Is our offense outdated? Well, Saturday proved that the pieces are there. You're not going to beat everybody by 29 points. You're not going to win every game in as dominating fashion. But I do think North Carolina, while they're not playing great right now, we'll talk about them in a minute. While North Carolina hasn't been great, like I do still think that is a very good win against an NCAA tournament caliber team. And at the very least, you know, this team is different. It's not the same as last year. It's not going to be the same. We're not going on these crazy losing streaks. We're not going to be able, we're not going to be incapable of closing out games. We have older guys. We have veteran guys. We have mentally tougher guys. And that is a great sign for Kentucky. I think the other great sign is you are, again, starting to see what this team can look like at its absolute best. You are seeing that this team has real leadership at the point guard position, that you have multiple players that can handle the ball. Severe Wheeler, again, eight assists. Ty Ty Washington, four assists. You have multiple guys that can hit open three-point shots. If you have guys that can hit ultimate three-point shot or hit open three-point shots, that leaves space for a guy like Oscar Shibway to operate down low where he's not getting double and triple teamed in the post because they don't have to worry about three-point shooting. And so to me, that's why I'd be excited today if I was a Kentucky fan because the bottom line is this. If that team plays to that potential, that's a team that can win the SEC. And I believe the SEC is right up there with the Big East and the Big 12 as two of the best conferences in college basketball. Any order, I don't know who's better than who. Uh, But what I'll tell you is, you start to look around the SEC, and I thought this weekend, as good as this league is, you started to see some cracks, right? Uh, Alabama lost last week to Memphis. We're, We're thinking a week ago, Alabama has beaten Gonzaga. They've beaten Houston. Is this, again, the favorite in the SEC? And they still very well may be. But they're not unbeatable. They lost at Memphis. They struggled with Jacksonville State. And they're coming back down to earth a little bit. LSU still really ultimately hasn't played anybody, although I actually believe they're a very good team. They have a player named Tari Eason, a transfer from Cincinnati to watch out for on that team. But they haven't played anybody. Auburn played well, beat St. Louis in a game that they easily could have lost on the road. Uh, Arkansas struggled. We'll talk about Arkansas in a minute. But the point is, as good as the rest of the teams in the league are, there's nobody that you're sitting there saying, if we play like we did against North Carolina, we have no chance against them. And so to me, I think this is a great sign. I think you have to be happy if you're a Kentucky fan, and I think you got to be really excited about what this means going forward. In terms of North Carolina, you know, I I saw a bunch of kind of real negativity with North Carolina, and, and, and I don't know if it's because first-year head coach and Hubert Davis. I don't know if it's because ultimately, um, you know, outside of a win against Michigan, they haven't really beaten anybody. But I, I saw a lot of, like, the sky is falling, this team's terrible, all that good stuff with North Carolina. I don't think so. I saw Hubert Davis after the game talked a lot about uh, intensity and coming in focused, ready to play, and I do agree with that. But let's be honest. College basketball is all about a sport of desperation in the moment. Who needs the game more right now? Whatever. Go back to that Kentucky-Notre North uh, Notre Dame game last week. 
Notre Dame was 3-4 and four coming into that game. Notre Dame was at home. Notre Dame was, had been on the road for two or three weeks at that point, going from the Maui Invitational to this event, to that event, to this road game. And so that was their first home game in about three, two, two and a half, three weeks. So they came out fired up. It was Kentucky's first road game, and they weren't ready to match the intensity of, North, uh, of Notre Dame. And I think much the same with North Carolina the other, uh, against Kentucky. I just don't think they were ready to match the intensity of Kentucky. I also think part of it is Kentucky's defense. I mean, listen, Caleb Love was a guy that came in averaging 17 points per game. He was a guy that was held in check by that North, uh, by that Kentucky defense, and he really struggled in this game uh, in a way that he hasn't really struggled all year. Basically, everybody struggled except for Armando Baycott, who was phenomenal, 22 points and 10 rebounds down low. And so when it comes to North Carolina, I'm not going to freak out. I'm not going to say the season is over. I still believe this is a good team with good potential. Um, I, I still believe that they are a team that Caleb Love, first of all, might be one of the two or three best players in the ACC. He's much improved, uh, you know, scoring more, turnovers are down, three-point shooting is up. He's really good. R.J. Davis is playing better. They have spacing with Brady Manick and Dawson Garcia. And as I said, Armando Baycott is awesome. This is not a game where I'm freaking out, where I'm saying that North Carolina's ruined, they shouldn't have hired Hubert Davis, nothing like that. The talent is on this roster to be the second best team in the ACC behind Duke to be that 5-6 seed in the NCAA tournament. And I know that's ultimately not where you want to be if you're a North Carolina fan, but I also believe that, you know, year one transition, Hubert Davis first season, I think they have plenty of wins ahead of them on the schedule. I mean, just look at the ACC. I mean, the ACC is absolutely terrible right now as we speak with really, you know, you're looking at outside of Duke. I mean, it's hard to find teams that are definitive tournament teams. Wake Forest quietly sitting at 11-1. and one. Steve Forbes, that was the guy, by the way, a million years ago when Tom Crean was hired at Georgia. I said, go get Steve Forbes. He's a real coach. You don't want this retread bum Tom Crean. But I bring it up to just say I think North Carolina will be fine. A couple other results in college basketball. While we're on the topic of Kentucky, Kentucky plays Louisville on Wednesday, although there's already reports that there's problems with, uh, with COVID in the, in the Louisville program. But I bring it up because Louisville's coming off an interesting game themselves on Saturday where they played uh, at Western Kentucky, and they lost to Western Kentucky in a game where the final score was 82-72, to 72, and it really wasn't all that close. It really wasn't all that competitive. And so I have, obviously, a couple thoughts. And the first one being, one, First of all, I'm obviously very happy for Kentucky or for Western Kentucky and their fans. I think it goes without saying we all know what that region of the country, specifically Western Kentucky, Bowling Green, where the university is, it was a bad couple weeks. And so for them to have this home game, it ended up being on CBS because the uh, because the Ohio State and UCLA teams were unable to travel to Vegas to play in the CBS Sports Classic. That was supposed to be a doubleheader. It becomes a one-off game. Louisville and Western Kentucky get on national TV and Western Kentucky takes care of business. So one, really happy for Western Kentucky, really happy for their fans to have this moment after such a crazy, crazy, crazy week. At the same time, what I would also say, I'm just telling you right now, I could be completely wrong on this where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. This remains to be seen. This feels like the kind of game that Chris Mack may never recover from, right? And we, I've spent so much time talking about this stuff in college football, where Dan Mullen takes a loss that he can't recover from, where Clay Helton, Coach O, Coach O, I said it the day that he lost to Kentucky at Commonwealth Stadium. I said, 
He is not, or Kroger Field, I guess. He is not going to recover from this game. LSU cannot continue with Coach O as, as their head coach. Sure enough, we find out that they're negotiating a buyout. A week later, he is officially out as the head coach at LSU. Why do I bring it up? It is because Chris Mack, I th- I'll say this. I think Chris Mack's seat at Louisville is probably a little hotter than people realize. Part of it is, you know, Nick Coffey's one of my great friends in the sports media. I'm not saying Nick Coffey has told me anything off the record, but I listen to his show sometimes. I follow what he has to say. And the Louisville fan base is really frustrated right now. I mean, keep in mind, this is year four for Chris Mack. Year one, you make the tournament and lose in the first round. Year two, you're obviously trending towards a high NCAA tournament bid, but unfortunately the tournament is canceled. Last year, you missed the NCAA tournament. And this year right now, Louisville is 7-4 and four with a loss to Furman, with a loss to Michigan State where they got kind of embarrassed. They got punked in that game. Now a loss to Western Kentucky. I guess I was wrong. Yeah, no, no, 7-4. and four. Western Kentucky, Furman, Michigan State, etc. And so I just, and DePaul. How, do, how could I forget the DePaul game? And so you look at Louisville's resume. I mean, they have a, a you know a, a win over a bad Maryland team that fired Mark Turgeon. A win over Mississippi State remains to be seen if they're any good. But this is going in the wrong direction for Chris Mack. And so you don't have an NCAA tournament win through your first three years. Year three, you miss the NCAA tournament. Then you have the extortion situation with Dino Gaudio that at the very least is just embarrassing for the university. And now you're 7-4. and four, And I'll be honest, I watched that Louisville-Western Kentucky game. Western Kentucky just had the better players. And so you look at Louisville, and it's hard to see the path where they get out of this and they suddenly turn things around, right? You've already lost to Western Kentucky. You've already lost to DePaul. So it's kind of what I just said with North Carolina. Yeah, there are wins to be had in the ACC. And maybe the ACC is ultimately so bad that Louisville can get to the end of the season at, you know, 22-10 and 10 and make the NCAA tournament. But this just does not look like a team that is go- that that has any real positive momentum going into ACC play. As I said, seven and four overall. You re- already have two losses at home, and now on top of that, you lose. I mean, listen, we talk in college sports all the time about big brother, little brother, and sometimes it is overstated, right? Like Michigan State is like the quote unquote little brother with Michigan, but let's be honest, Michigan State's beating the brakes off of Michigan lately. I don't know that they're little brother. Texas A and M maybe was the little brother at some point at Michigan, they ain't right now. And so I just bring it up to very simply say that Western Kentucky is the kind of game, they are a true little brother. They're in Conference USA, they're a smaller school. Western Kentucky has obviously had more historical success uh, than many people realize, but that is not a game you can lose if you're Chris Mack. And so I don't have all the answers. I don't know. I'm not saying that he's definitive. And like, listen, you could turn things around. That stuff happens all the time. But you're 7-4, and four. you look like, to be blunt, you don't have the better players over Western Kentucky, and then on top of that, that's coming off of three years, zero NCAA tournament wins, and an extortion case. I'm not saying, but I'm just kind of saying, I wouldn't want to be Chris Mack right now. Obviously, the plan is to play Kentucky on, on Wednesday night at Rupp Arena. We'll see if that game happens. As I said, Matt Jones, Kentucky Sports Radio, tweeting out late uh, Sunday that there's some COVID issues inside the Louisville program. And so I'll tell you, man, you talk about a guy that needs some kind of positive performance. It is Chris Mack. I'll also say this. like I, I do give him credit for scheduling the game, and I do think that's part of this as well, is that game it, we could have obviously never could have, would have wanted to predict what, what, what did happen in Western Kentucky. But for Chris Mack to even schedule a game at Western Kentucky I think is an incredible gesture on his part. But that feels like the kind of game 
that you might never recover from. Just a few more college basketball thoughts before we get out of here. Uh, one will kind of stay in that region of the country. Arkansas takes a loss to Hofstra on Saturday night. Um, not good. Not good. And, and, and Arkansas now, and I'm not going to be overly critical of Arkansas because, listen, they struggled at this time last year. And guess what? They turned it around, made the NCAA tournament, and that is what I feel like I see with Arkansas. Made the NCAA tournament. They made an Elite Eight. But I bring it up because that's kind of what I feel like with Arkansas. And this is sometimes, this is the reality of the world that we live in with this transfer portal stuff. I was watching Texas play Stanford on, on Sunday. I don't think Texas has figured out yet. I don't think Chris Beard has figured out yet who he has, who plays well together, who doesn't play well, who's ready for this stage, who's ready for this moment, who's willing to do this, who wants to come off the bench. And I think it's kind of the same with Arkansas. When I look at Arkansas, I just think Coach Muss is a guy, he's been in this transfer game for several years now, but it takes time to figure out what you have and how all the pieces come together. And so I'm not yet worried, but it was a disappointing effort overall for the Hogs. First of all, you give up 89 points to Hofstra. That is not a very good effort. That is not an acceptable effort. But two, I just don't think you know who you have at this point. Um, you know you have Jalen Williams down low who's just been so good for, for all season long. Um, and I think you have a bunch of pieces on the perimeter with Devo Davis, with, with um, I was going to say Jalen Tate, but obviously not him. Audis Tony is who I was thinking of. Uh, you know, you, you have guys, J.D. Note has been their leading scorer, but I don't think Coach Muss yet knows how all of the puzzle pieces fit together. And so, no, I'm not going to worry because, yes, Arkansas took some losses early in the season last year and struggled, and then they figured it out. But right now, obviously, the three-point shooting needs to be improved. Uh, this is a team that is scoring a lot but not shooting the ball very well at under 30%. And I do think when it comes to Arkansas, you just kind of got to figure out, okay, who are the pieces, who fits well together, and who doesn't? Um, because right now this team is really struggling. The only other real marquee result from the weekend, I'll say this, Providence is a real team, and, and I'm a UConn alum. Providence went into Hartford, Connecticut on Saturday, sellout crowd. It was probably, I would say, the most anticipated home game at UConn in six or seven years, programs trending in the right direction, and Providence just went in and got a win, um, and I was so impressed by it, and Providence played has already played a very impressive schedule this season they won at Wisconsin earlier in the year they beat a really good Texas Tech team earlier this year but I gotta be honest Providence going into UConn in a Big East game 16,000 people at the Excel Center in Hartford Connecticut sellout crowd probably the most anticipated home game in a very long time and Providence just went in and was the better team and this was a game that I do believe that UConn is going to be fine we'll talk about UConn in a minute but when I look at this game from Providence's perspective, the one thing about UConn now is that UConn, since Dan Hurley has gotten there, he's established a brand of toughness and physicality down low. It is the first time that I can truly remember a team going up against UConn and being the more physically tough team. Nobody out-toughs UConn under Dan Hurley, and that's exactly what Providence did. Uh, UConn won the slight rebounding battle, but overall, uh, I just thought Providence was the better, tougher, more physical team, and it showed. They go in the XL Center, and they win by four. Great win. Providence now 11-1. I'm telling you this. If your favorite college basketball writer doesn't have Providence in the top 15 coming out of this weekend, they're not paying attention. I think they're a top 10 team. I think they're one of the 10 best teams in college basketball I've seen this year, but it doesn't change the fact that, to me, Providence uh, you know, picks up a big win, an impressive win against UConn at the Excel Center. What I would say really quickly with UConn, and, and it's so funny, right, is that 
I've started all these team-specific accounts. You know, Torres on on the Hogs, if you're not following that, Arkansas fans. Torres on Bama. Torres on UK. Uh, and we have a Torres on UConn account. And so, you know, we have great people running each individual one, although I will readily admit that I'm running the UConn account right now while we try to find somebody to run it. And to see the reaction from UConn fans after this loss and to see the reaction from UConn fans after a West Virginia loss, I don't get it. You know, UConn is a program, it's a very prideful program, and it's a program that has really struggled over the last two or three years. But this is a team that's now sitting at 9-3. and three. Their first loss of the season was in the Bahamas after they played Auburn in an absolute war that went to two overtimes. You have players fainting afterward. You lose to Michigan State in a game you easily could have won. Then you lose at West Virginia by three without two of your three most important players, Tyrese Martin and Adama Sonogo. Tyrese Martin comes back in this game, um, and you know, you, you're still without your best low post player in Adama Sonogo. And yes, you, you don't never want to lose at home, but you lose by four in a game that you easily could have won. And so I saw UConn fans freaking out. I just don't see it. This is college basketball. This is the regular season. You don't go undefeated in college basketball. This isn't Georgia just being able to steamroll over everybody in the SEC East. This isn't Clemson in most years being able to steamroll everybody in the ACC in football. And I'm obviously talking about Georgia football. But I just bring it up to very simply say, I, 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 if you're a UConn fan, you want to win that game. But I didn't come out of that game saying UConn's awful. They have no shot. They're terrible, this and that. I just kind of believe this is one of the uh, this is one of those games that you just kind of shake your head if you're a UConn fan and you move on because it was a game they easily could have won. They fell down early. They could not rally, but obviously it was disappointing. All right, I think that's it for this episode of the Aaron Tour Sports Podcast. Time to get out of here. Before we get out of here, I want to remind you of a few things. One, one, first of all, first of all, first of all, first of all, um, one. I do want to remind you, schedule this week, it remains to be seen. I'm going to do a second episode at some point. I was initially thinking Wednesday morning, but with two big college hoops games on Wednesday night, assuming that Kentucky plays Louisville and that Tennessee is scheduled to host Arizona, I may just ultimately wait until Thursday to drop the next episode. It remains to be seen. We'll only do two episodes this week. Does not make sense to drop an episode on Friday on Christmas Eve. So that's that. Two, make sure you're buying our merch. Revenge Tour Tees, great day to pick up a Revenge Tour Tee. Also, the Mike F. and Woodson Tees, they're available at Aaron Torres online slash merchandise. You can find them there. Also, DM me on Twitter or Instagram with any questions. Uh, make sure you're following the social media pages at Torres on, Torres on UK, Torres on the Hogs, Torres on UConn, Torres on Arizona, Torres on the Vols, Bama, on and on and on and on and on. Other than that, that's really all I got to say. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. If you're not subscribed, make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, Google Music, Amazon Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure to rate and review the show. Last little announcement, manscaped.com, promo code Torres, 20% off plus free shipping. That is all for today's show. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel, who hates my voice. I'll be back sometime this week. Another episode, Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I'll be back, party people. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.